Uh, if you've got a Bible, I encourage you to grab it and go to Matthew uh, chapter 13. Matthew uh, chapter 13. So you don't have a Bible, there's probably a red one in front of you. The passage of Scripture is also in your bulletin as well as um, on the screen. And yeah, you got a lot of room today to take some notes. I just noticed that. It's like, I need to just kind of add a few more things to kind of fill up the space. That's okay. You can draw pictures and do whatever you want to with it. So uh, so, so a couple more things. So no, don't forget about membership class coming up at the end of this month. I encourage you to sign up for that. Secondly, today is Get in the Group Sunday. And so all we mean by that is that our sanctuary, our auditorium here right after the service, uh, we'll have it kind of divided up into these little sections. We'll have little signs for you uh, to where you can go and meet group leaders that meet in these little areas of our uh, region. And so if you don't know where your neighborhood or city or town or whatever falls in, on the sign, it'll kind of show you. Uh, so if you're in the southwest Louisville or east Louisville, that kind of stuff. So just encourage, if you're not in a group, this is a beautiful kind of like small step. Sometimes it can be really intimidating to walk into a home that you've never been in before, but this is an opportunity for you to meet somebody, get a face with a name, and, and hopefully show up this week in their group. And so that'll take place right after our service here in the auditorium. All right? Awesome. So here's what we're doing today. This was what I was planning on doing last Sunday, and then I wiped out on some ice. All right? And so Josh did a phenomenal job filling in for me uh, last week. But here's what I want to do today. Um, yeah, I read a book back in the fall by one of our pastors at the East Congregation. His name is Mike Cosper. wrote a new book called Recapturing Wonder. Um, and so, like, what I, what I want to do this morning, my desire, my hope, is that I want to not necessarily regurgitate all that's in that book, but I do want to kind of share a portion of what the Lord has been doing in me as a result of kind of reading this book. And so hopefully, um, my desire would be is that maybe you would be willing to pick up that book, read it. It's a well-written, one of the, yeah, it's, it's a beautiful, well-written book, highly uh, committed to you. My Cosper is a godly man, loves Jesus, uh, part of the, one of the founding pastors here at Sojourn Community Church. So maybe we'll encourage you to go read that book. But most importantly, my uh, end desire for us is that maybe we'll walk away from here thinking about the way in which we live, the rhythms we have, the habits that we have, and that by God's grace, we would be willing to kind of change possibly, reform, and do something a little different. And so that's kind of where I'm going. And uh, I, I made some adjustments between this, this service and last service. I, I felt like it was kind of a lot. And so I found some ways to uh, make some adjustments. You guys won't know that because you weren't in the nine. Uh, but if you listen, whatever, it doesn't matter. All right, so that's what we're, we're going to do this morning. And then next week, we will start our parable series. And so I'm really, really looking forward. So, so for your information, one of the things that we try to do every year, we're always trying to figure out a couple books we're going to work through in a year's time. So usually like thinking of Old Testament, New Testament. And another thing we always want to work, about, work through is like uh, we want to do something in the life of Jesus. So either we're working through a gospel or we're, we're taking some teachings from the life of Jesus and pulling them out. We're always, you know, we, we get that all scriptures God breathed, all scriptures pointing to Jesus Christ. But we also see that there's something about the Gospels where he lived for three and a half years and their recording of that. It's something we want to marinate in often in a year. And so we're going to look at the parables. We're going to, we've divided them up into three. So we're going to look at the parables of money for a couple weeks. Then we're going to look at the parables of the kingdom, which we'll touch on that a little bit in this service. And then we're going to look at the parables of judgment. And that will lead us all the way up to Easter. So it's going to be some good stuff. Man, I encourage you to invite a friend, come back. I'm really looking forward uh, to diving in those uh, stories with you. All right? Cool. All right. Super. You guys are really responsive. Amen. Let's, uh, <laughs> thank you for laughing. Uh, let's, uh, let's stand together in honor of reading God's word.
Matthew chapter 13, just reading a couple of verses here. And actually, this is one of the parables. We'll kind of circle back around as we work through the parables here uh, in the next few months. So, um, so yeah, we're going to be camping out in verses 44 through 46. So hear the word of the Lord. So the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And we found one of great value. He went away and sold everything he had and bought it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we do every week when we gather and we read your word, we ask for your help. We cannot understand this without your spirit opening up our eyes, opening up the eyes of our heart, the ears of our heart, so that we can hear it and live it, Lord. So once again, we ask for your help. And God, just as Elliot mentioned earlier during a confession time, tomorrow is Martin Luther King Day. And our desire as a church and as Christians, as followers of Christ, is that we would, we would represent your heart for all nations, for all peoples, and no matter what the color of their skin is. And that, God, you would be so kind to help us become more of a diverse congregation here, not for the sake of diversity, but for the sake of showing and giving people a taste of what the new heavens and the new earth is going to be like. And so, Lord, that starts with us, not pointing our fingers out, <laughs> But with us saying, okay, God, what, what part do I need to play? And so, Lord, help us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So just as a, a way of show of hands, how many of you made, like, uh, some goals, New Year's resolutions, anything like that for the new year? Yeah, put them up there. Put them real proud. All right, super. And if you're willing to do this, this is, like, way, way vulnerable. Anybody already broke them? Anybody want to, okay, yeah, awesome, love you, Jeffrey, yeah, and a handful of you. Uh, I did too, I know it's like a week in, and I've already broke one of them, so one of the desires I had in this year, and I'm coming back, it's always a thousand restarts, amen, uh, as I do, I want to, I'm, I'm trying to do like handwritten notes to specific people, and trying to do two a week, it's kind of my, I know handwritten notes are like so old school, right, it's like <laughs> text them or send an email, but I do, I just, there's, there's ways I want to uh, do a better job of just kind of uh, expressing personal touch and love for people specifically within our community. And so, so I had a desire to do, I did, did a great the first week, even when my head was all foggy and weird. And then this week, I blew it. I didn't do it this week. So, uh, so a new start in the coming, uh, coming week here. But here's, here's the reason, I think most of us would say, the reason why we set goals, have resolutions, even if you're not a resolution or a goal person, you would kind of, uh, you know, affirm this. The reason why we do that is because we want to change. Like there's things about us that we don't like or there's things about us that we want to grow in. And so we set a goal or we set a resolution and say, okay, I, I want to do these things in order to kind of sort of better my life in these certain areas. It can be physical, it can be spiritual, it can be emotional, whatever it is. And, and I would say that, that most of us in this room, it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not a Christian, there, there's like in our DNA a desire to change. Like we don't want to be the same person, right? We don't want to wake up next year and be the same guy or young lady. I, I personally don't want to be the same Lyle that I am today as I can be next year. Like there's, there's change that we want. I, I want more self-control. I want more patience. I want more kindness. I want 
better discipline in my own life. I, I, I do. I want to be a different person. I want someone to look at me and not in some kind of prideful, arrogant way. So, wow, Lyle, you've changed a lot. You know, in the last five years that I've known you, man, I've seen change in you. You are a different person. I think all of us kind of have this common desire. Now, where we differ a little bit, I think sometimes, is how. Like, how can I be a different person? How can I change? One of the things that we say around here quite often is that it's okay not to be okay. Or it's okay to be kind of a broken mess. But if you're in Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it's not okay to stay there. Like you, you come to Jesus in order to be changed, to be a different person. Some of you rolled in here this morning because you want to change. You want to start something new. And so like, how do we do that? Like, what is the means by which we do this? Now, if you grew up in this area, which I did, grew up in Lebanon Junction, and if you grew up sort of in the South, this is kind of what you know. You, you live in an over-churched area. You live, yeah, it, this is... Tons of churches in this area. And so sometimes, because of that, there's good in that. I'm not saying that's all bad. But there are some kind of unintended consequences to living in an overchurched area. And one of them is this, is that the way in which you change is you consume more information. So how I become a better follower of Christ or how I become more kind, more self-control, whatever it is, then I need to find a book. I need to find a Bible study. I need to find a podcast. I need to find a a sermon series. And if I digest that body of information, then I'll be different. Now, if you've lived long enough, you know that that's not enough, is it? Right? I I mean, our culture is information overload. And it really is. Like, the way we have access to Bible studies and preachers and Stuff, you know, podcast, all, I mean, it's crazy. It wasn't like this even 20 years ago. And so here's what I want to do this morning. I want to say that, yes, information is important, right? It's a part of growth. It's a part of change. But it's not enough. Our way of life, our way of being has to change if we really want to see lasting change in our lives. Guys, we got to, like I'm not trying to be down on the world and be doom and gloom, but I am trying to help you see that we live in a world that's forming and shaping you, whether you realize it or not. You live in a culture, in a society that is not orienting you toward God. It is orienting you and shaping you, and almost, you can use this language, programming you for doubt. You live in a world that is programming you for doubt, for cynicism, for being skeptical. It's not orienting you or programming you toward belief and trust and wonder. And so information is not enough. It's part of it. It's not enough. Your way of being also must change if you really want to see kind of lasting change in your life. And so, where do I get this? What, what am I talking about? What in the world, Lyle, help me out here. So that's what we're going to do. Let me show you a couple 
of things from this uh, parable here. A couple of observations that will kind of lend us in this direction of where I wanted to go is where we need to change the way we live, how we function, the rhythms in our lives. The first observation is this. Both of these guys, the, the farmer and the merchant, do something that looks really crazy to the world. They almost look like they've lost their minds, right? So look what happens here in verse 44. The kingdom of heaven, and just, just briefly, we'll, we'll dive into this more in a few weeks, but when when you hear kingdom, the shorthand for that is life with God. So when you think of kingdom, the way the Bible lays it before us, it's life with God. What does life look like when God's in charge, when, when God's will is being done? And, and kingdom of heaven is the term that Matthew primarily, primarily uses. Kingdom of God is a term that Luke primarily uses, and they're synonymous. They're the same. So when you think of kingdom, think life with God. So the kingdom of heaven is like what? It's like a treasure that's hidden in a field. And when a man found it, and I'm kind of messing up with you, Eric, up there. I'm skipping a couple verses, not going to do those. So jump all the way down to verse 44. Sorry, buddy. Thanks for your, your patience with me. Um, so when a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had to buy that field. We see it again. Verse 45 here, but in a kind of a different context. Again, the kingdom of heaven is what? It's like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And when he found one of great value, what did he do? He went away and sold everything he had and bought it and bought that pearl. So notice here, no one commands them to do this. There's no command from Jesus or no command from God to go do this. But in their joy, they are doing what makes sense to them because they have recognized the value of this treasure. They've recognized the value of this pearl. And so it absolutely makes sense to them for them to go sell all they have in order to obtain this. No one is commanding them to do this. This is in their joy. They go and sell everything so they can attain this treasure and this pearl, which is synonymous with the kingdom of heaven. And as an outside person or the world looking in, what this farmer and this merchant does seems out of their mind. That's crazy for you to go sell everything in order to purchase this. That's kind of nuts. But they're only doing what two people who are in love do when they exchange their wedding vows. Forsaking all others. My love for you is primary. My love for you is priority. And yes, there are things that I will do that does not make sense to other people because those other people don't love you the way I love you. Forsaking all others, you're my priority. You're the center of my affections. Like I've done a lot of weddings in my 20 plus years in ministry. Some of it's because I was in student ministry for 19 years and, and all those students grow up and they say, hey, Lyle, will you marry us? And there's periods in my years where I'm like, dude, this is, this is a lot of weddings. I can't do anymore. Like, I'm done. And weddings stress me out like crazy. I mean, it's just, it's so difficult. People have no idea how stressful weddings can be when you're officiating though. I'd rather do a funeral, which sounds kind of morbid, all right? But, you know, it, yeah, moving on. So... <laughs> But I've never been a part of a wedding where in the midst of them exchanging their vows, this forsaking all others, that they bring out a piece of paper and say, hey, here's some exceptions. <laughs> right? 
No one ever does that. No one ever goes, hey, honey, we're, we're getting married during basketball season. And so you need to know that if our anniversary falls on a day when UK is playing, their priority, right? Like that doesn't work, right? What, what happens when we're exchanging vows there is that you're forsaking all others. They're your primary love. They're your primary place of affection. That's who you want to be with when you have a choice of who to be with. That's what it means here. That's exactly what's going on in this parable is that, that your love for the kingdom, specifically for King Jesus, that he is the utmost of your affections, that he is first priority. And yes, you will do strange things that the world will look at and go, that's just weird. That's strange. That doesn't make sense. Why are you doing that? Because they don't get the love that you have for Jesus. So like, I mean, this may be like, you know, not that big of a deal, but I think it is. The, the world can look at us as we gather every single week on a Sunday morning and think we're really strange and weird because here we are gathering as a body and the primary reason why you're gathering here is not for your entertainment. Yeah, we want, I want you to enjoy it. Like, I'm, I don't come over and read my sermons. Okay, the farmer and this merchant. Look, like, I'm not doing, like, I'm animated, not because I want to entertain you. It's part of not who I am, but I don't want you to be bored either. But that's not the primary reason why you roll in here. When you go to a basketball game, why are you going to that? You want to be entertained. You go to a concert, why are you going to that? I want to be entertained. If you go to a movie, why are you going to that? I want to be entertained. The primary reason why you roll in here every week is not your entertainment. It's because your love for Jesus and your desire for your affections for him to be stirred. And to a world that's watching that, that sounds kind of crazy. That doesn't make sense. Well, you do crazy things when you're in love, Right? And so look, don't, don't, don't. this may sound like I'm kind of talking out both sides of my mouth, but you've got you to be careful not to take this literal, right? In one sense, we need to kind of like really wrestle with the literalness of this because Jesus is saying, hey, you are to love me above all things, right? All right, but every person that Jesus came in contact with, when he says, come follow me, he didn't tell every single person to go sell everything they had, but he did tell them that you need to love me with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You need to have a change of heart, a change of desire that can only happen supernaturally. And when that happens, things that you do, things that you say, how you live, looks a little weird and crazy and nutty. So it's number one. Both these guys, the merchant and the farmer, do something that seems crazy to someone on the outside. And part of that is because they have a love and affection and desire for King Jesus. Second is this. And before we get in there, just, just real quick, that's kind of like a side note. So for some of us in this room, that can feel kind of crushing what I just said there. Because some of us in this room are kind of getting spinned out and going, man, I don't know if I love like that. I don't know if my love and affections is first and foremost Jesus Christ. I, I'm really feel like I'm horrible, maybe I'm not a Christian, maybe there's something wrong with me. And here's just what I want to say to you before we move on. That's why the gospel is good news, right? 
Because the gospel is not about what you do. The gospel is all about what Jesus has done. And so Jesus has loved this way on your behalf. Jesus walked on this earth and loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength so that when you receive him and you are now in Christ, then guess what? That is credited to you. He did this for you. So that even in a moment like this and you're being confronted, maybe even convicted of your lack of love for Jesus, it's not to crush you but to empower you. It's not to paralyze you but for you to step in All right, let's own the reality of what's going on in our heart and say, God, I want to be different. Help me. That's the beauty of the gospel. So hear me. I'm not trying to make this feel crushing to you. I pray that the Lord uses it to empower you to step in and own your lack of love for him and say, God, stir my affections for you. All right. So side note, moving on. All right, number two, second thing. So, So we got this craziness going on, these two guys do. And then there's also this sort of hidden nature to the kingdom which is kind of weird, isn't it? So look what it said there in verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like what? A treasure that's hidden in a field. Verse 45 carries a similar tone when it says this, that again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And so if he's looking, it doesn't mean those fine pearls just rolled in his lap. There's a There's a hiddenness even to those fine pearls because he's looking for them. This word hidden is found several times in the New Testament. And it always carries this um, idea of like not able to perceive, unable to understand, unable to see it fully. I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, First one is in Matthew chapter 11. In verse 25 when it says this, At that time Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because what? You have hidden these things. You've kept them in the dark, so to speak, from the wise and learned, and you revealed them to little children. In Luke chapter 18, the word is used again, kind of like same same idea, keeping us from understanding and seeing. Look what he says here. Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. All Jesus is doing here is predicting what? His death, burial, and resurrection. And I love the response of the disciples because he puts us all in the same boat. Because I feel like this sometimes too. Verse 34, the disciples didn't understand any of this. Why? Why? Its meaning was hidden from them. And they did not know what he was talking about. So there's a, there's a way in which it's unable to kind of access with the physical eye. It's hard to perceive. It's hard to see. It's a supernatural work by the grace of God and the Spirit of God to help us see this kingdom of God because it's hidden. So the kingdom of God, guys, think about this. This I know this sounds kind of like out there and even hard to kind of grab a hold of, but it's, it, it exists as a world within a world. Are you following me? The kingdom of God exists as a world within a world. Or, or even another way of saying this, the kingdom of God is hidden in a fallen world. Like I can't see it with my physical eyes. I can't necessarily touch it. All right? It's it's hidden in this fallen world. So here's the question that I'm trying to answer for us is then how do we live in the kingdom of God while it remains hidden? Or 
Another way of saying that is this, is how do I, how do you and me come alive to the kingdom of God while I live in a world that orients me away from God? You follow me? How do I become more alive to this hidden kingdom while at the same time I live in a world that orients me away from belief? That orients me away from God and the things of this kingdom. How do I live in this? How do I, how do I posture myself to where I'm orienting toward another world that I can't see with my physical eyes? I know it sounds a little crazy, but, but follow me here, guys. Look, what I'm saying is this, is that then the only way that I can live in this world that sort of remains hidden while I live in a world that orients me away from God is this, is that I don't just need another Bible study. I don't just need another sermon. I don't just need another book. I don't just need information. I've got to cultivate a way of living that orients me toward that world. I've got to cultivate a way of being, rhythms, habits, that cultivates my heart and life to the hiddenness of the kingdom of God. Whereas Mike Cosper says so clearly, we cannot live in the kingdom of God and leave our way of life untouched. Here's kind of my translation to that. and Yeah, I want to be tender here, but here's my translation to that. You cannot expect to roll in here every Sunday, even if you roll in here for every Sunday for next year, and, and that's all you do. And you don't touch anything else in your rhythms, in your habits, in your way of living. Listen to me. You will not see the change that you desire to see happen. You will not see the change that God desires to see happen in your life. Yes, this is a part of it, and I'll get to that in a minute. This gathering is enormous. It's important. It's a necessity. But listen to me. It's, it's not enough. So maybe this will help a little bit, all right? Every once in a while I like to bring in visuals to keep us alive and so we're not sleeping because it's usually when somebody wakes up. Oh, wow, we got a golf club out there. I'm going to wake up right now, all right? So I grew up in a little town called Lemon Junction, which is about 30 miles south of here. So we moved around a lot when I was young. Um, I was born in Lexington. We lived in Louisville, Shively area for a few years, went to Memphis, Tennessee. But when I was in the fifth grade, uh, we moved back to where my mom is from, which is Lebanon Junction. She still lives there, lives there till day, till today, obviously. Um, and so there is a golf course, non-horn golf course, Knob View Golf Course is what it was called, that was right across the road from my home. And so uh, when I was a teenager, this is, my, this is what I did. This is my summer. I mean, we didn't have Xbox, PS4, we didn't have Atari. We had nothing. I mean, we, had, we, we got cable, like when I was a senior in high school, and I thought it was awesome. It's like we got TV stations. You know, before that, we had like rabbit ears. So, um, so my summers were, I would, me and my buddies would get, get up in the morning. We'd go across the road. We'd pay two bucks, and we'd play golf the entire day. That's all we did. All we did. And I would have to rent clubs. As we were we were pretty poor. We didn't have any extra money for me to go buy clubs, so I'd have to pay like an extra five bucks and get like some nasty, I mean, these are nasty clubs. Sometimes, because you, you just get in there, you pick and choose what, what's left over, and sometimes I'd have a, 
a three iron for a putter or whatever. It's like our, or a three wood would be my driver because it's like, all right, well, let's go, man. And we strap it on. I'm telling you, we would play all the time, like all day long. And I took like basically one lesson from my cousin who name, whose name was Leonard Ray. I think he was an alcoholic. He's probably drunk when he was giving me this lesson at this time. But, but he was the guy that kind of taught me kind of the sort of the ropes of playing golf and how to swing and your arms and your heads and all that kind of good stuff. And then I would just go and practice. That's what I would do. Now, I've, I've tried to teach my wife and I've tried to teach my four boys how to play golf. And it's awful. <laughs> like, I am the worst teacher when it comes to golf. I am absolutely. Because if you're familiar with golf, man, there's a lot that's got to go on to hit a ball. And you're trying to teach somebody this. You're going, okay, first thing you got to do is you got to get your grip right, right? You kind of land it right there in where your kind of your, you know, your fingers cuff. But you don't want to be too tight, like not too tight, not too loose. Well, how tight? Like, I don't know. It's just kind of, you just kind of feel it, but you don't want to be real tight. And then, then when you, once, once you get it down there, you want to make sure you're making a V and it's going down the whole shaft there. Right? Make sure you're making that, not, not too far over there, but you want to, want to go down the middle of your shaft. And when you line up to the ball, now remember, now if, you're, if you're driving, you want the ball in the front of your stance and you want that ball to be right on the back of your heel. You know what I'm talking about? The back of your heel? No, the back of your heel. That's a little too much. Now, when you're not driving, you want to kind of move yourself up a little bit. What do you mean by move yourself up? Well, You'll see in just a minute here. Now, when you get over top the ball, you want to make sure you bend your knees. No, no, not, not like a catcher. You know, like that. You can't, yeah, not stiff. And you want to kind of be over the ball, but not completely over the ball. And you don't want to stand up. Like you got, yeah, yeah, sort of like that. And then when you get there and you go back for your swing, you don't want to, you don't want to swing back like you're doing a baseball bat. You want, to, you want to kind of visualize going over top of your head. And when you're doing that, don't forget, keep your arm locked. This one right here. Not this one, right? This one you got to bend. If not, you just end up being a kind of a weapon. It looks kind of weird. But you got you to keep this arm. And, and in the midst of all that, keep your head down. You got to watch that ball, right? Dude, it's atrocious. Like, like as I'm giving instructions, I'm, I'm going, like, I don't want to hear myself talk anymore and if I'm myself right now I'd be mad at me right that's so there's too much to handle at one time and in reality like it, the, the difficulty for me in teaching people about especially my kids and my, my wife is that I just do it it's intuitive like it's like in my gut I, I know what it feels like when I'm approaching a ball I know what I'm doing, I'm not thinking about how my legs are and my hips and my back and my arm. And I'm not. I'm just getting up there going, I right, keep your head down. Nice follow through. That's all I'm thinking about. And the rest of it is gut. It's intuitive. And why is it that? Because I practiced. Was it because I went and read all these books about golf? Right? Was it because I went and watched all these videos on how to swing? I mean, yeah, information was a part of that, but that's not all of it. I went to the golf course, and I practiced, and I hit, and I put into practice eventually to the point where all I do is approach a ball, and I know what to do. I don't have to think about it. And that's the way it is with any skill, isn't it? Anything about, like, what these musicians do here every Sunday. I mean, you can go home and say, all right, today, this year I'm going to learn to play the guitar. 
And you've got a lot of options on what you can do there. You can go and digest all the information about a guitar, the frets, the chords. You can watch all the videos. You can read all the books about guitar. But eventually, if you do not embody that knowledge, you can't play a guitar, right? You can't come up here and play seven songs like them. Your fingers would be bleeding, right? Because your fingertips need to build some calluses when you're doing that, right? That's, that's embodying your knowledge, there's a way in which it becomes intuited. After years of practice, you have little thought. It just comes because you've taken your knowledge and you've embodied it. One writer puts it more like this in better terms. Intellectual knowledge has been worked into the body in such a way that the actions a craft requires become second nature, automatic, reflexive. The body is primed to do the work because practice has enabled it. You could say that practice opens up a world. You follow me? Like, if you don't know how to play golf, it's awful. It really is. You go on a course. And you can't inhabit the beauty of a course because you're going all over that course looking for your stupid ball, right? But when you've learned and it becomes intuitive, there's a way that playing golf is so beautiful. You're out there looking at stuff, being the beautiful scenery that God's created. It's the same with playing an instrument. It opens up a whole world when you practice when you embody that knowledge. So let me ask you, what, is, what has happened then? Why has this connection not been made with Christianity and your growth? Why have we always just assumed that growth as a Christian has everything to do with information? The next study, the next this. If I get a new idea, information in my head, then I'll change. What happened to this idea of embodying what we know? What has happened to this idea of like, this is what I know, then how is it changing the way I do life? My rhythms, my habits. If I want to orient myself to a world that I can't see with my physical eyes, then I've got to reorient my living. I've got to Step into practices and habits and rhythms that will open up this world to me. Mike Cosper says it like this. And he says, your daily routine has a worldview. You ever thought about that? What you do daily, your routine, it has a worldview. How you see this world. It orients your body to the world and primes you to experience it in specific ways. Ways Annie Dillard once wrote this, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. What we do with this hour and that one is what we are doing. Each moment of our days, our meals, our conversation with friends, our escapes, obsessions, romances, and distractions is what we make of our lives. Our habits and rhythms of life are formative. Not only for who we are, but how we know the world, including whether we know it to be a place where God is present or absent. To come to live in the kingdom of God or to seek 
to live in a world other than our disenchanted milieu requires a wholesale reordering of our habits and commitments. As Thomas Merton said, once we find ourselves hungering for God, we will seek a whole new way of being in the world. If I want to come alive to the kingdom of God, I cannot leave my way of life untouched because this world in which I live is formative. It is shaping you. We are fools to think that this world and this culture is neutral. It's shaping. It's forming. So, gosh, I mean, I don't want to make it this simplistic, but there's a part of me wants to, like, if you are here and you think, I, I, I don't sense God's presence. I don't know if he's for real. I don't feel this desire for him. I want to sit down with you and say, okay, tell me your habits. It's like when someone comes to my office and says, man, I'm depressed. I don't start off with spiritual matters. I don't go, oh, what sin you got going on? I start off with saying, okay, tell me about your sleep habits. How are you sleeping? Tell me about your work habits. What's your work life like? What kind of stress you got going on in your world? Are you, are you, are you exercising? What are you eating? If you're eating McDonald's every day, I'd be depressed after about a month, amen? It's the same way with Christianity, guys. I was, look, like I said, I was in student ministry for 19 years, did, ton, did tons of camps, tons of them, tons of retreats, tons of mission trips. It's sort of like my life I felt like there for a while, and detriment to Kathy, she's just holding the home together. Man, Phil for her, she's such an awesome, amazing woman. But here's, here's what I discovered with the students is this, is like they would always come back and say, look, wow, when I'm at camp or I'm at a retreat, or I'm on a mission trip, man, God seems so real to me. Man, I just, I just, I feel him. I feel his presence. I just feel so alive to him. They may not use that kind of language, but that's the language I'm interpreting for. That's, that's what it is. They think, man, but when I get home and I get to normal life, you know, I've got chores, I've got practices, I've got school, I've got a job, I've got all this going on. It just seems like God is gone and I've lost him. And so inevitably what they're asking is like, how, how can I get God in my everyday life? And I always tell them, so look, all right, here's the deal. Number one, camp, retreat, mission trips, they're wonderful gifts that God gives to us, but they're not real life. They're not. You don't, you don't live as a teenager, nor do you live as an adult like camp. <laughs> it's just, I mean, I'd like to. I mean, it's nice, no responsibility, yeah. Get to play a lot and have a lot of fun. I mean, yeah, but that's not real life. But what did you do there? What was your way of being? What was your way of living during that week of camp or that weekend? And how can you take that and bring it into your normal life? Are you follow me? Because when you're at camp, there's a way in which God is central they get up. They do a devotional in the morning. They go eat breakfast. They have kind of a morning celebration. Then they go and do a Bible study, right? Then they go and have fun. 
which is all part of the experience because God's created this beautiful creation. We don't want to be followers of Jesus Christ where the earth grows dim. We want to be followers of Jesus Christ where the earth just explodes with beauty and meaning because God created it all. So they get to go and have fun on the blob, swim, all that kind of crazy stuff. Then they come and eat a horrible meal for supper, but then they go and do a two to three hour worship time. Like their entire day is, is, is centered around the presence of God and living as if it's real then why can't we take that in principle and put it in our normal daily life? Yeah, I get it, guys. I'm, I'm 48 years old. I work 50 hours a week. I get it. I can't. I'm not waking up every morning and doing this massive Bible study and then a little bit later gathering a bunch more people and having another Bible study and then going playing out in the lake a little bit. And then every evening I'm doing some kind of massive emotional, you know, awesome service with my family and we're just loving. No, that's not what's happening in my world. But I'm asking you guys and me to think, is there a way of living? Is there rhythms that I can put in my life that orients me toward God? Is there a way of living to where they can orient me to become more alive to the kingdom of God, that it's real, that God is present, that he's with us, that he's active? Is there a way of being that I can change to where I really live like God is here? And I want to say, yes, there is. And you don't have to go to youth camp. You don't have to go to a youth retreat to do it. And so this is what I want to lay before you. And this is how we're going to end our time together. Real quickly here. Uh, Mike Cosper talks in uh, his book, all throughout the book, just these different pathways. Really encourage you to get this book and read it. It's a great little read. But in one of those, uh, he talks about marking our time and not just making time. And what he means by marking times, is it's, it's where our lives need to be marked by significant moments that calls, calls us to remember that we are citizens of a different kingdom. That we need to mark our, our time, not just make time, but mark our time to where we're intentionally being reminded of this other world that is real. And it's where we're headed, right? And so he talks about thinking in concentric circles. And I put together a little diagram up here and it's pretty horrible, but it's okay kind of visually brings you back. So he thinks about concentric circles and the outer ring starting yearly, weekly, daily, and hourly and begin to think about like how can I mark my time and change the rhythms of my life to where it's orienting me toward living in the kingdom of God. So think about yearly. There are two holidays, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, that we celebrate every single year. What are they? Christmas, Easter, yeah, thank you. That's what I kind of heard up here. I don't know what that was. <laughs> those are the two holidays that we celebrate, and those two events are two events that mark the life of Jesus. And so you think about, you think about Christmas, guys. Christmas time, it proceeds by a season of Advent, which we at this church try to step into every single year, not, not because we're trying to you know, earn God's favor, but we want to shape and form us. That our, Even our yearly calendar has a way of forming and shaping us as people. So we have a season of Advent to where we, we long for and anticipate the second coming of Jesus. We celebrate his first coming, but we see that the world is not all as it should be. And so we spend this four weeks leading up to Christmas thinking, processing, reflecting, anticipating, so that when Christmas comes, it is a celebration. 
We're ready to rock and roll, not only because we got gifts, because we know Jesus is coming to set all things right. So that's Christmas time. You think about Easter. Easter precedes, it's preceded by a season called what? Lent. And depending on what tradition you grew up in, you don't know what to do with Lent, right? Some people want to make it more than whatever it needs to be, and others just say, well, that's stupid. That's legalistic. That's dumb. We're not going to do that. I'm going, no. There's a way that that shapes us. So look, like, one of the primary reasons why we do Lent is so that Easter's not a surprise, right? It's like we roll in here on Easter Sunday as a Christian. We're going, I dress up, I'm supposed to be excited and thrilled. He's alive. And I fake it for an hour and a half, right? Well, Lent kind of prepares you for that celebration of Easter. There's ways that you embody it. A season where you lament your own sin and repent. Maybe it's a time where you fast and do away with something. Not to earn God's favor. We have God's favor in Jesus Christ. You don't do anything to earn it. This is a way for, for the kingdom to become more alive. That's yearly. Look, look. Most of us in this room, you're already doing it, right? You're killing it, right? You need to know you're killing it. I'm just saying, why won't we step in with some more intentionality with it? You think about weekly. One of the most forming, formative times of your week is what you're doing right now. Yes, it's not enough, but dadgummit, it is vital for your Christian life. Some authors have said it's the heartbeat of what it means to be a Christian because every week you get a tangible, physical expression of the kingdom of God in your midst. This is where we're headed as a people in the new heavens and the new earth who submit gladly on the reign and rule of Jesus Christ. This gathering is necessary, vital for your growth. And every single week, guys, we do something called liturgy, which is the work of the people. And that work is not to gain favor from God, but that work is so that I would be reminded of this wonderful story of the good news called the gospel. I need to be reminded of the truth that God's for real, that he's at work, he's at work in my life, and I can look amongst these people right here and say, wow, I know he's in work. And that person's like, oh yeah, I know the situation's going on there. And they are singing out and worshiping him, even in the midst of some of the most trying, difficult circumstances in their life. I need this weekly, and so do you. You will not survive as a Christian without it. Just look. I think you know this, but sometimes we just need to be reminded. Like, me and Elliot don't get together and go, okay, we're going to play in worship. What's a fun, like, rocking song you can do at the beginning? You got something? Do a couple of those and then land the plane with a soft song right before I get up there, right? I mean, some churches do that, and that's okay. They want to do that, so be it. I mean, I'm not ripping them. I'm just trying to say, like, there's a work that I want to invite our people into, both Elliot and I do. And there's intentionality and planning of how we work through the gospel every single week. And guys, listen to me. It's formative. You may roll in here and be bored. Okay. I'm not trying to be boring, but that, that's the reality sometimes of living in a fallen body, right? You may roll in here and fall asleep. And I've seen some people fall asleep up here. Don't get offended by that. Can't too, because I got to keep going, right? And you may roll in here and feel like, I'm not getting it. I don't know. I didn't get something. It's not about getting something amazing every time you roll in here on Sunday. It's like eating a meal. Amen? You need it. And there's a way that God's forming you in the midst of you gathering weekly. 
So look, you're killing it. Yearly, you're celebrating two holidays already. Let's step in. Hey, you're here, right? You're here. It's shaping. It's forming. Next one is daily. And I won't spend a whole lot of time here, but I do think it's the area where I think a lot of us in this room need to really think about. What am I daily doing? What is my habits? What are my rhythms daily that's orienting my life toward the kingdom of God? And I just want you to go home and think about your bookends. What are you doing to start your day? And what are you doing to end your day? Because this, I know you're done hearing me say this. This is not a work we do to get God's favor. This is not a work we do to get God's blessing on our day. We've got God's blessing on our day because we're in Jesus, period. This is the work we do so we can come more alive to the kingdom of God that is at hand. It's here. And so, so what if... What if this year you got up 15 minutes earlier, that's it, and read a psalm and you prayed? That's it. And what if every night that you go to bed, maybe you go a little earlier, and right before you fall asleep, you spend five minutes just praying, acknowledging God's guidance over your life, Acknowledging the reality that he never sleeps. He's got it all in his hand. Acknowledging that, I, that, that God is the one that gives sleep to those he loves. Acknowledging God's presence in your life. I mean, just, just five minutes. That's it. That's a rhythm. That's a way of being. That's a way of living. That'll open you up to a whole new world. What are your bookends like? Maybe tomorrow you start. All right, 15 minutes. That's all I'm doing. Get up, a psalm, pray, go to bed, reflect, think, pray. That's it. I'm telling you guys, I'm telling you, it will change your life. And then lastly is hourly. And I think all these kind of work uh, in, in ways like they kind of circle in as you do yearly, weekly, daily, hourly. Your, your, your mindset, how you see things will radically change. You'll, you'll find yourself doing what Paul says, you pray without ceasing. Where it's just an acknowledgement that God is always with you. And you're in one way, kind of, this sounds kind of weird, but you're always in constant conversation with him. Because you know he's so real. So yeah, some of you might sit here and think, okay, man, Lyle, that feels like work. And I want to say it is. It is. One theologian said this, the Christian idea has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It takes work. Grace is never opposed to effort. It actually empowers effort. Grace is always opposed to earning. So, Lyle, can I be a Christian and never step into one of these rhythms? Yes, you can. Because being a Christian has nothing to do with what you do. Being a Christian is what Jesus has done on your behalf and you receiving that, period. Now, 
Flip side, I think your heart and your desires and your wants change, and there's a desire for this. And you step into this because you want to, not because you have to. I close with this one quote. The Christian life, there are no shortcuts. There's no way to a fast track of our growth. There's no jack in our heads through which we can download information and suddenly become saints. There's only the slow and patient work of showing up, reordering our days, seeking God in word and prayer, and looking for him with a moment-to-moment awareness. May God change us for his glory and for our good in 2018. Let's pray together.